Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I help you discover what makes you special and help you share that with the world. Writing engaging content is one of my superpowers. I create fertile ground for my clients, bringing your ideas to life. I love to connect people and resources or solve seemingly impossible problems. Look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please give us a review and subscribe to hear our next episode. Today is the third episode of my Four Badass Black Women series. My guest today is women's leadership coach, Jackie Capers-Brown, who interviewed me for her Level Up Your Life podcast in June. When she asked me about my favorite song, I immediately answered, Rise Up by Andra Day. Jackie excitedly told me it was her favorite song as well. If anyone has risen up in spite of the ache to move mountains, it's Jackie. Hearing Jackie's incredible story of grit and resilience through great griefs and hardships and discussing the Rise Up song with her planted the seed in me to start this podcast. Now let's meet Jackie B. Hello, Jackie. How are you doing today? Hey, Marie, I am doing really well, my friend. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. I'm so excited to have you on my podcast because for listeners, Jackie is actually my inspiration to start a podcast because you interviewed me, uh, I don't even remember how long ago that was, in June, I think it was. (laughs) Yes. So can you tell us about what made you decide to start a podcast? As a leader of women, one of the things that I encourage my coaching clients, as well as individuals who attend any of my training, is that they develop the ability to advance their vision, voice, and value in the workplace or marketplace. In order for me to live my truth and to live what I encourage others to do, starting a podcast is one of those ways in which I'm able to advance what I believe is my vision my voice and value towards empowering others and especially women of color. I love it. That's such a great way to put it. Great inspiration. So can you tell our listeners about your life? Where did you grow up and where do you live now? And what is your grit and resilience story? Okay, so I was born in Columbia, South Carolina, where I currently reside. And Columbia, South Carolina is known for being famously hot. So because we're right now in the middle of the summer, it is extremely hot. I mean, I was born in a working class family and my two parents, Willie Mae and William, demonstrated such a sense of excellence towards their work. My mom worked as a domestic. My father was actually an engineer at the old Columbia Hospital in Columbia, South Carolina back in the 60s and 70s. However, their ability to tell me and inspire me to believe that whatever work you do, it should represent you at your best, so much so that you should be able to sign your name on your work. So as a result of my parents really demonstrating that and being able to communicate that in a way that me as a young child understood, I grew up believing that whatever I do, I should be able to sign my name on Mm -hmm. if I considered it to be a reflection of who I am. As far as my parents are concerned, my mom passed when I was 13. And as a teenager, having very little life experience, 
when I began to experience the anger and sadness and depression that came about as a result of the grief I was feeling, because when my mom passed away, I felt like the rug had been pulled from up underneath me. She was my security blanket. And when I lost that security, I felt like I was not standing on solid ground. And that happened within me. I felt like I was no longer grounded within. Thankfully, my father purchased me my first blue diary with a key when I was nine years old. And I had gotten into the habit of actually writing down my thoughts and the things that I did on any given day as a kid. That particular habit actually is the reason why nine months after my mom passed away, I was able to recognize that I had become an angry teen and I know I didn't want to be an angry teen because I grew up being a pretty happy child. So I had an intuitive hunch to instead of me focusing on the loss of my mom, that I needed to focus on what my mom had actually provided me while she was alive. And that was the things that I admired about my mom. She was strong, she was tenacious, she spoke her truth to power even during the time when black women weren't heard much or respected as far as being heard and and her faith in God. Those qualities of my mom, I decided to actually just say to myself, well, my mom was strong. My mom had strong faith. My mom was definitely tenacious and she she just didn't give up. She, she had that grit that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I just began to embody it. I just began to say to myself that my mom is strong. So I'm strong because I have some of her DNA in me. As a result of that, the depression left. Now, at the time, I didn't know it was depression. I just knew I was angry based on what I had written down in my diary. And I knew I was sad because I wanted my mom. And I was mad at God because he had allowed her to die. But through the process of me writing down my thoughts and becoming self-aware, that placed me on this journey that I'm still on today. When my father passed away when I was 18, even though he did his best to prepare me because he was dying from cancer. And so I knew he was going to die. The fact that both of my parents were dead by the time that I was 18 tore me up. And I went into, I was in college at the time, but I could not go back to college. I decided to stop that last semester that I went in order for me to to gather myself. At that time, I had my daughter, Dean. And I just could not, I just did not feel like I had the strength to be able to do both full-time school, working in the evening, as well as doing schoolwork and tending to a child. Six months after my dad died, I found out that I was pregnant with my son, Blaise, and he came about. And the fact of the matter is I decided that I could no longer work with both of my children, not having people to take care of them while I worked. So I went on government assistance and then moved into a Section 8 apartment. And for a year and a half, I lived with my children feeling defeated because of the dream that my parents had for me and that my father even telling me after my my daughter was born that you can still go to college, you can still yet um, accomplish your goals. He didn't see it as something that should stop me because he knew I was ambitious and I believed him. But once he passed away, the reality of not having any parents in the world hit me like a brick. Not knowing what my future was going to hold, I focused on my children. I did the best that I could while I was no longer working. 
But then I had a spiritual awakening. Thank God I did because at that time I was feeling really bad about myself and the fact that I was not able to um, provide my children with the life that I believe they deserve. As a result of that spiritual awakening, I began to see myself the way God sees us. And because of that, because of the love that I felt that God has shown towards me, the mercy and grace that he's shown towards me, and then the spirit of strength that I could call upon from my mom, my dad, and my ancestors. I was able to start a minimum wage job working for Marriott. And within 10 years, I had become an executive leader of one of their successful hotels in Wilmington, North Carolina. Six months after that promotion, my baby boy, Belize, he was 14 at the time, transitioned. He died unexpectedly from a cardiac arrest. And as a result of my son's transition, initially I, I attempted to dismiss, deny, and numb my emotion. And even in the face of that, the suffering that I was doing in silence, I was still able to build a successful team that resulted in us winning all kinds of awards. However, three years later, I recognized that I was losing myself. I was losing myself because I was working 60 hours a day. I, become, I had become a workaholic simply to deny the truth of my grief. And I knew if I didn't pull over and actually regroup, I was going to completely not be able to recognize who I was becoming. I tried therapy for about six weeks and realized that it wasn't for me. And so I prayed a simple prayer. God helped me help myself. And so he did. Wow. And as a result of that, when I came back out of that, one of the things that I became committed to was helping others actually realize the power of the stories that they tell themselves. Because it was the story, the fear-based story that I was telling myself about me not being strong enough to handle my grief that caused me to suffer needlessly. And so that's a big part of the work that I do today helping people transform the narratives and to redefine what's possible in their life and step into their great. Wow. What a story. Such an inspiration, Jackie. Mind boggling that you were able to pick yourself up and carry on like that after experiencing such great grief. So I know that you shared with me earlier that you actually found your mom when you were 13. She fell upstairs and I was downstairs cleaning and I heard the thump from above. And then the next thing I know, she was calling my name. And then I ran up the steps and she was, she had actually fallen, but she had pulled herself up on her knees beside her bed. And my sister Sally came over and took her to the hospital. And I never saw her alive again after that. That's just so tragic. You must have experienced great trauma after having that horrible thing happen to you at such a young age. You know, I, I will tell you one of the things that, and I don't know if this has to do with my father, his genes that I have, and also the way he would talk to me about how to look at life. When I was in the fourth grade and had to go to my first school where white people went to, it was the hardest year of my school years because in the black school that I was attending, I was a pretty smart kid. And I also had no problem letting other people know that I was smart, which meant that I didn't sit in the back of the class. I sat in the front. I liked raising my hand and sharing what I thought was the answer to things. And not always right, but oh well. When I went to this school here in Columbia in the fourth grade, 
I did the same thing, but I didn't get the same response. And my father, throughout my fourth grade year, had to actually talk to me every other day while I was in school to let me know that I was going to be able to get through this. And one of the things that he taught me was, it was about perspective. He was teaching me about perspective when I was nine. And that was that though this is a challenge, the fact of the matter is you will grow up and be a leader that will help our people. And at the end of the day, we need you. He would say, we, we need you to get through this. And because of the wisdom of my father, who taught me about perspective at nine, I wasn't aware of that when he was teaching me. Mm-hmm. I just knew that he was comforting me and helping me to get through a very difficult school year with a very difficult teacher and classmates. And as a result of that, I believe that my father teaching me that at the age of nine has a lot to do with how I'm able to perceive things. Although I felt sad and depressed and angry after my mom died and when my father died, I didn't know how in the world I was going to live in this world without both of my parents. I know that my father, that season in my life in the fourth grade where he was teaching me how to look at things when I would get on the telephone and rant with him about, well, you know, I did this and she did that or somebody in the classroom, they did this when I said this and and it made me feel X, Y, and Z. But he allowed me to express what I was feeling and thinking and then him and his wisdom would teach me how to look at it from a bigger perspective and remind me of the bigger purpose for my life. And so it's that, I believe, that actually prevents me from walking around with a lot of the internal stuff that other people who have experienced similar are actually walking around with because of the fact that my father, he began to help me learn how to see life based on perspective and not just based on my feelings. Wow. So, I mean, it seems like unimaginable grief in your life, you know, both losing your parents so early and then your son. What wisdom do you have for people who do not have that perspective, who are trying to get through great grieves in their lives? The first thing I would say to anyone who's experiencing that is that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay for you to respect, acknowledge the truth of what you're feeling. Your feelings are your feelings. And You should not allow anyone to tell you that you shouldn't feel the way you feel because you have every right to feel what you're feeling. The second thing I would say to you, to the listeners, is because we feel something doesn't mean that it is the entire story because our brains are meaning-making machines. And that meaning is often attached to emotional interpretations of our experiences. So what I would ask you to do is to look at your experience and then begin to identify what is the meaning that I have attached to this? And is this meaning to this experience that I'm having or have had, is the meaning I've attached to that experience, is it empowering me for my greater good? Is it helping me to feel better about myself? Not necessarily the experience, But is it helping me to feel better about myself? Is it causing me to feel stronger? Because if the meaning that you've attached to any experience is not empowering you because you have seeds of greatness within your potential that you have yet to tap into, then it's not for your greater good. 
And as a result, I would encourage you, if necessary, seek out the help of a mental health professional, seek out a coach, seek out a therapist or a friend that can hold space for you and not try to fix you, but allow whatever you're feeling and what you're thinking to just be so that then you can begin to become self-aware of what the thoughts and the meanings you've attached to your experience, how it is influencing your current behavior. Because you have wisdom within you that you may not know is there. But it's only until you are able to turn towards the very thing that may have hurt you, the fear, the pain, only when you do that will you begin to liberate your soul. You'll begin to liberate the genius that's within you to liberate that power that's in you in order for you to turn around. I don't think that it is by accident that you are listening to this particular podcast. And if you're hearing my voice, it is because it is time for you to take back your power. It is time for you to recognize that though you've had this experience or you are in the mix of an experience, you are bigger and greater than the experience. And all you need to do is to believe and trust that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that light begins to shine as you begin to release the meaning that you may have attached to an experience that is causing you to feel as if you have no power, that you have no control, and that you can't change whatever it may be. It may be something that you have to accept, but that doesn't mean that you have to stay where you are. You have the capacity within you, believe me, in order for you to rise up, tap into the seeds of greatness within your potential and move forward and be a testimony to the fire and the power of the human spirit for others around you. That is some great wisdom, Jackie. You just took us all to church. Thank you. (laughs) Amazing. I really feel, I truly believe in the power of getting support and wisdom from other people who have walked that path. You know, no one can understand an experience unless they've experienced it themselves. So you have so much to share with people. Have you ever thought about being a pastor? No, I've never thought about that. (laughs) Well, I think that your talents could be easily uh, shifted into that realm personally. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about what's happening in our world right now, especially Black Lives Matter and the highly public deaths at the hands of police and all of the demonstrations across the world. How are you feeling about things right now? Well, initially when I witnessed George Floyd dying, under the knee of an officer, I was angry as hell. And I did not believe that I was seeing what I was seeing. But then my anger began to be transmuted into action. I began to contact people here locally in Columbia to find out what it is, based on my skills and my interests, what it is that I could be doing to actually help our city transform the criminal justice or injustices here. And so as a result of that, one of the things that came out of it was for me to get feedback and to to actually not necessarily feedback, but to actually speak to black men on this topic, which is why I'm currently doing the Black Men on Justice in America podcast series for my Level Up Your Life podcast, simply because I wanted people to hear the voice and the experiences of black men from diverse backgrounds. 
And then also because I needed to be the student. I needed to learn from them. Even though I'm from a family and I have many brothers, I wanted to expand my understanding of black men. And I was schooled. I was schooled. There are many things that I assumed about black men that were completely wrong as a result of me talking to all of these different men. And then I began to appreciate them so much more because I felt a sense of understanding. But as also in addition to that, for the podcast series, I have contacted someone who actually trains politicians here. Hmm. And I've informed her that next year, I will take part in in her training because by the time I get out of that training, I will also have completed, I'm going back to school next year to finish something that I will have completed that. And and I don't know where spirit is leading me where that is concerned, but I know it has something to do with politics. And so as a result of that, I will see. But for me, it's no longer me standing back and watching things happen and not being involved. It is important that my spirit, I follow my, my the unction in my spirit to get involved and to develop the relationships that I need in the event that I do run for a political office here. I need to focus on the ends of first getting trained to mm-hmm. run a great campaign if I do choose to go that direction. Mm-hmm. Because there are other things that she uh, trains people as far as political stuff is concerned. So I'm not I'm not completely sure. Am I running for office? Am I learning how to run a campaign for someone else? I'm mm-hmm. not really sure. All I know is that I need to be trained. And so getting that training is going to provide me with a strong foundation for whichever direction I feel my spirit is leading me. Yesterday, I watched a Zoom meeting led by one of our representatives, Earl Blumenauer, and he convened a meeting with Joanne Hardesty, who is our first Black commissioner of Portland, longtime Black activist, and Ayanna Presley. And it was an amazing meeting. I read that we have record numbers of Black women running for the House this year, which is fantastic. I can just totally see you in politics. So I'll be cheering you on from the sidelines. So do you remember thinking back to your childhood, when was the first time you experienced or learned about racism? Well, I went to an all black school. So it was something that was on the, t- on the top of mind of all of my teachers that I had. And they would talk about the events that were going on because as I grew up right at the heat of the civil rights movement. And so that was a topic of discussion with each one of my my teachers in first grade and second grade and third grade. So it was not like it was something that was not discussed. And it wasn't, I mean, one of the things that they didn't focus on, they didn't focus so much on what white people weren't doing. They were, they focused more on what we will be able to do as a result of these actions and what your generation. And I grew up, one of the great things about my all black elementary school was that all of the teachers, everybody was black. And not saying anything against the other schools that I went to, but for me, it was a solid foundation in my blackness because they made us feel proud to be black. They made us feel smart enough to do whatever we aspire to do. But they also made it very clear that we were the generation that was supposed to uh, not only get out and march and be able to create change, But as we got these opportunities that our parents and our parents' parents 
did not have the opportunity to receive, that we were to lift up those behind us. We were not to be focused solely on our own quote unquote success, that our job was to be lifters of our people in order for us to continue to progress. So my parents didn't focus so much on conversations about race. They didn't focus so much about what white people weren't doing. I grew up in an environment where the blacks in that environment felt like it wasn't because of white people. It was because of the laws in this land. And yes, white people had control over that. But my parents weren't people that looked at themselves like as, as victims and nor were any of the adults that I were around. They realized that our people actually were slaves. And then even after being that, they were able to become some of the smartest and richest people during the Reconstruction era before all that changed. With that, having that knowledge that our people even raised themselves up without education, that is the mentality of how my parents raised me to see Black people. That's also the mentality that my teachers raised us in our class to see ourselves. We definitely had a strong sense of our Blackness and our power. That makes a lot of sense, learning what kind of a person you've become, that you had that great foundation of knowledge and, and affirmation of who you were. Yes. How did you teach your own children about racism? My daughter innately always leaned towards her Blackness. My son, on the other hand, I think because of the fact that uh, when he was young, he was placed in a learning disability program. And eventually he worked his way out of it. But I think that may have challenged what he saw himself as a black man, being strong and bold, being confident to move forward beyond you know the label that they had put on him when he was in his early years of school. Whereas my daughter, it was when she was in fifth grade and we moved into a more diverse neighborhood that she, she began to feel the sting of racism from some of her teachers. And having my own personal experience of this in fourth grade, I had to address that because as a result of it, my daughter recognized that she was worthy regardless of what anyone else, whatever color, whether it was someone black, someone white, whoever, that she can define her own self. She gets to define that just pretty much like my father did with me when he was teaching me about perspective and not putting the power in other people's hands. And what about when you got into the workplace and did you experience a lot of sexism and racism when you first started working at Marriott? More sexism Mm -hmm. than racism. Marriott is a pretty progressive company. And even then in the 80s, it was pretty progressive about some of the things that they were doing across the country in their hotels. They were putting Blacks into leadership roles early compared to some other companies. I mean, at the time, Marriott wasn't as big, of course, as it is today. But I think Mr. Marriott recognized that with the push of affirmative action and all those different policies that came into play, that it was to the companies, it was beneficial to the company to actually recognize its Black employees and to give them opportunities. And so for me, it was more sexism because of the fact that most of the leaders that were in the first Marriott that I worked for were actually men out of the military. <laughs> and most of them were leaders. And so as a result <laughs> of that, yes, I definitely experienced statements made that I definitely consider to be sexist. Now, they may have you know racial 
thoughts behind me or whatever, but I never felt like how they were treating me was based on the color of my skin because I saw them treat other women and say similar things to them that were did not look like me. Interesting. You know, Marriott's been in the focus in Portland recently because they are housing the federal officers. Interesting. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So, I mean, because I've often stayed in Marriott hotels. I've had respect for them as a brand. So, yeah, it's interesting that they, you know, it's business, I'm sure. Yeah, they may not have realized what they were getting into when they accepted. Agreed to it, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, not not Marius not getting a lot of positive press in Portland right now. So. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that they're not. Um, but then you know they've had other incidents as well. Since I mean, even while I was working for the company, that they didn't they weren't getting positive light. Again, I can only I can only speak from my experience. Yeah. And I think that part of the reason why I experienced what I experienced has a lot to do with my father teaching me about perspective. Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure, you know, many of the people who I work with, like Jackie, I didn't see it like that. So <laughs> right. believe me, believe me, I know that my perspective about my whole work experience is probably based on the fact that my father taught me about perspective in the fourth grade, mm-hmm. uh, whereas not many of my classmates had an, an older parent like I did for one thing. And second of all, didn't have someone that had that kind of wisdom to actually sit them down twice a week and teach them about looking at things and then teaching me about how everything in life is politics. So there's a lot of things that I learned as a kid that has created the lens by which I look at things. Well, and as you know, when you work in a large company, it really all depends on who your supervisor is. You can have a fantastic experience with the supervisor where one of your colleagues is having a horrible experience. Yeah. You know, when things get big, it's hard to control, right? Very hard to control. And the thing about it is, is that I did, honestly, with no fluff, I had great leaders. These people inspired me to be a Marriott leader because they were great leaders, not because they were piss poor leaders or they were doing people wrong and, you know, deliberately just screwing people over. That kind of leader would never have inspired me to be a leader, not in that company. But at the end of the day, these, these individuals, men and women who inspired me to become a leader in Marriott was because of the fact of how they treated me and the people around me from my perspective and from what I saw. So I think that in any company, you're going to have the people who are not going to be great leaders. And then you're going to have those who aspire to be great leaders and are not provided opportunities. And then you are going to have those who are great leaders and they have those opportunities. So for me, I think that just because I was taught perspective at such a young age and my bosses would come to me and talk to me about things, me being able to have overcome all these various what they consider to be really bad things that happen to you. So as a result of that, I was able to get their confidence and they supported me. They supported my success. Well, what a gift that your dad gave you to have such clear lessons. You only had them for 18 years of your life, but you have these crystal clear memories of what he taught you. That is such a gift. Yes, absolutely. I thank God every day for both of my parents for what they taught me. Mm-hmm. My mom told me, taught me not to take no shit, and my father taught me about perspective. Yeah. yeah, that's good. I'm really glad you have that memory of both of them. So what mistakes have you made in your life, and what have you learned from them? Well, in my adult life, I would say that all of my mistakes 
have been based on my inability to believe that I was enough, whether it was in a relationship, whether it was me not pursuing a next level opportunity professionally. When I think about my mistake, what I consider to be one that really now fuels a lot of what I'm doing now is my greatest mistake recently that I made was during the Great Recession. And that mistake was that when I came back home, because I was living in Wilmington, North Carolina, instead of me allowing my spirit to continue to lead me on what I needed to do next, instead I looked at the circumstances you know, people not working, people losing their jobs, homes, and all that stuff that was going on during the recession. And I didn't believe that was the environment for me to get out and begin to speak about the power of our story, the power of how our narrative, regardless of what the situation is, if we can actually change the story, we will change our life. We can change our perspective, which gives us a whole different view of life. And as a result of that, I failed, in my opinion, to honor what I committed to in Wilmington, North Carolina, when I came up out of that dark night of the soul and promised God that I would actually evangelize this message of story. And I didn't do that. That's not only been my biggest mistake, but it's probably going to be my biggest regret in my entire life. I did not actually utilize the time when people were hurting the most to actually help them to see, as my father taught about perspective, the story, and how you can actually tap into your own power. Now, based on COVID, I've done a lot of training based on this because I said this time it will not be the case that I regret it. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what I do now focuses on that and helping people to rescript the story that they're telling themselves so that they can begin to access the seeds of greatness within them. I've only known you during COVID, so I don't know what you were like before COVID. (laughs) (laughs) I know you and I both talked about how much we love that song, Rise Up. Yes. (laughs) Like, yeah. Rise up. Yes. Yes. I know. I know. (laughs) And so think about other things that you've read or watched or listened to recently that have inspired you. Do you have anything to share with our listeners that you would recommend? I've been listening, reading a lot. What I'm reading right now is the book, The Memo. And I'm reading it because of the fact that. Mindy talks about her experience as a woman of color in corporate America. And because I'm about to start writing my next leadership book, I wanted to hear the views of other women of color. Because one of the things that she brings up in her book, The Memo, is that when the book Lean In by Cheryl Sandberg. Sandberg. Well, when that book came out, all of her friends were reading it and they were just like, oh my God, this is it. This is, this is the roadmap to success. And she says in it, when she got the book and started reading it, she says, well, why is this book nothing about my experience as a black woman <laughs> in corporate America? So what happened here? And how is it that all of these people telling me that this is the book to read, but it doesn't have anything in it about race and about the privilege of white women in the workplace and how black women and women of color have more challenges in the workplace. And I was like, whoa, because of course that was not my experience in corporate America. Now as a business owner, that's a completely different story. 
But at the end of the day, her sharing her story has just opened my eyes to some of the challenges that I began to remember about past coaching clients who told me, but Jackie, this chick ain't like this. I'm telling them, you know, you need to see it different. You need to, okay, I want you. And there were certain things that I was asking them to do. And they had a boss that was a white lady. And I'm like, what is going on? And so when I'm listening to Mindy, I'm like, oh my God, no wonder. I was like talking at the side of my neck and not knowing what's going on now in the culture. Because apparently this group of women in corporate America are unlike, well, unlike the ones that I experienced during my corporate America experience. She is schooling me. And I'm like, I love it. I love it that she's schooling me because for me to actually write the book, that I am to write as far as women of color leadership book. I needed to be schooled. And so at the end of the day, for now, I'm being schooled by the book, The Memo. I'm loving every minute of it. And I will probably re-listen to it over and over and over. But then I'm also looking at some other books for me to read regarding women of color and leadership in corporate America, because I need to understand fully or as much as I can, what is the current temperature of experience for women of color in corporate America, especially having been, as she talks about Lean In, well, I followed Lean In for many years, and I was one of their circle leaders for many, many years, okay? And for me to realize that I I never read the book, for some reason, I never felt inspired to read it, (laughs) but she did. And she's giving me the <laughs> the 411 on it, so I don't have to read it. At the end of the day, I just feel like it's important that we learn how to build bridges, you know? And so right now, me listening to the voices of other women of color authors and respecting and valuing and actually investing in them is so empowering to me. I'm going to read it. I read Lean In and I did feel like, you know, Sheryl Sandberg has a huge amount of privilege. She can, you know, hire full-time nannies, you know, things like that. I did get something out of the book, but I'm with you. I kind of am being re-educated myself. In every place of my life now, I'm re-examining things and saying, okay, where are the people of color? So it's interesting that you had to get schooled that way too. Yes. <laughs> Because of the fact that I'm walking around and maybe because Mindy is older, she was older when she wrote this book, she was in her 30s, whereas initially most of my early coaching clients were in their mid-20s, okay? Mm-hmm. And so they hadn't had the life experience, they weren't, you know, or the work experience like Mindy had had at that point when she wrote her book. So. I think that's where I was coming from, my early 20s, and, and had, utilizing all that energy you have in the 20s to be strategic and intentional. And for the most part, I would say seven out of 10 of those young people, young women that I coach, have been very successful. But when I look at it, I realize that the other three probably didn't get as much out of it because of the fact that they weren't able to get the perspective that I had hoped they would get on their experience in order for them to use it and leverage it and not allow it to stop them. So um, shame on me for not being able to have that level of wisdom, not believing that everybody has my experience, because I know we all have different experiences. But for whatever reason, I felt 
Like, if you change your perspective, but it's not just that. It's the same way with racism in America. You know, you can change your perspective, but it doesn't mean that it's going to go away unless you put in institute policies and laws that hold people accountable. I think you and I are around the same age, give or take a few years. And I think back to when I was brand new in the corporate world and they used to have strippers come in for the men. Like, yeah, like, I'm not, you know, like, what is it called? Singing telegram, silly singing telegrams who were strippers. Now, they didn't take everything off, but I remember being called into a conference room. They invited everybody in the office to come watch. And, you know, this woman would be taking her clothes off and, <laughs> and singing to the men. And, you know, now when I look back on that, I remember feeling really uncomfortable at the time, but I didn't quite know how to say anything about it because I was in my 20s, you know? Yes. And now yes. I look back on that, I think, oh my God. <laughs> so, I mean, times are changing in corporate America. Things, are, things have gotten better in some ways, but, you know, there's still so many microaggressions and still so much racism, you know? It's more polite racism now, I think, than, you know what I mean? And sexism, you know, than outright. Yeah, I mean... I guess for as far as being polite racism, I think that most people, most people of color definitely know when they feel like somebody is being racist. I mean, I'm just not going to assume that because we are not the same color that you are racist. There, there are certain actions or tone of words that you would need to consistently demonstrate for me to actually start to think that if you're not racist, you're definitely not favorable to people that look like me. I've heard people talk about the Northwest. Have you ever been to the Northwest? No. So Oregon was founded as a racist utopia, and we have a really, really horrible history of racism here. So that's why we're pretty white, because of the way that we were founded as a state. We've never really caught up to the rest of the country. Even though Portland is one of the most liberal cities in the country, what I've heard from Black people and other people of color here is that it's polite racism. So it's like, you know, you're not going to get... Well, we also have a, an unfortunate history of white nationalist movements as well, because there's a lot of wide open spaces here and because of the history. But I think that to a lot of Black people, they feel like they don't know who they can trust because people are not, you know, and I've never actually been to the South. So <laughs> you and I both have, don't have perspectives of each other's geographies, but I've heard that things are much more outright racist there. And here it's more subtle, you know, and sometimes it's hard for black people to know who they can trust here. Yes. I mean, definitely in the South is more outright. Well, one of the things, one of the things I feel like is I'm fortunate to be living in a city where a lot of blacks have a lot of power. And so even though we know that there are races here, um, the fact of the matter is in Colombia, there are so many powerful black people that if they start to get a whiff of something, they will come at you. So they have no problem with that. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fortunate to be living here in Columbia, yes. whereas yes. there are counties around me that is not the case for the Blacks in it. For our county and the fact that our mayor is African-American and he, he has a lot of influence nationally, that has a lot to do with, I think, how blacks show up here in Colombia, speaking our truth. And if you don't agree, we can talk about it, but that doesn't mean necessarily you want to change my mind because you're white. So you're kind of in a relatively safe place in the South. (laughs) 
<laughs> kind of. Is that is that true? I mean, in terms of I would I would I would, I would say so. I mean, uh-huh. I would I would say that. I mean, definitely, I I feel safe. To, you know, to the extent that I can be safe anywhere, right? In my opinion, but I do believe I would never actually live in a city where blacks don't have the kind of power that they have here. Mm. I learned that in Wilmington when I moved there and did not know of so much of the history of them running out the blacks in Wilmington uh, hundreds of years ago. And when I recognized that I was ready to leave that city. I wanted to transfer. Mm. I was like, oh, no, no, no. I cannot live here knowing that these white people ran out a whole, I mean, blocks of black, successful blacks. That just, oh, that grieved my spirit. So being who I am. However, I was given the opportunity to be, be a bridge builder in my hotel because when I took over that hotel, it was 80% white and 20% black, pretty much. And, of course, they were not the, <laughs> the white employees. All the black employees were not accustomed to working for a black woman. And I'm pretty spirited. I have a whole lot of energy. Um, I'm not. There's very little dull about me, especially when I'm leading, because I know that is my happy place. So, at the <laughs> end of the day, there was a lot of misunderstandings initially because this loud black woman from Columbia came in like a tornado. And that's what they said. That's what they told. That's what they said to my boss. That's what they said on the in my first employee opinion survey. As a general manager, I was rated the worst GM in our area, mid-Atlanta area. Uh, when I received that, I was like, oh my God. But I said to myself, when I realized that was their opinion of me, was that they don't know who they're dealing with. They don't know who my mom and daddy was. I turned it around. I used the political skills that my father taught me and turned it around to the point where my team became, those who were not on board, they left. Not because I fired them. They left because I, I began to influence the other people who wanted to succeed and win actually get behind me. And they were no longer able to gossip about me or try to tear me down as a result. And so they left. And the ones who didn't leave got on with the program. They got in on with the program as a result because we we started to win and we started to win big. That's one of the things that I believe in, that if, if leaders actually build winning teams, you will maintain your cream of the crop because people like to win. Everybody that I've worked with in all my teams, they all, there were always people that wanted to win bigger. And those were the people that I relied on to help me do that. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I, when I went to Wilmington, it was like, they were like, what is this? How in the world did my district manager put me here? Does he not know me? <laughs> is wrong with him? He know how loud I am when he come to the hotel. <laughs> you know, he's not quiet about me. I'm like, what? Oh my God. Well, he yeah. had faith in you, obviously. And and I just like you and Wilmington, I'm really grateful to the black people who stick around in Portland. <laughs> because they, you know, seriously, they have an uphill battle. Like one of the women that I interviewed from my podcast, or she was born in New York, she lived in Hawaii, she escaped an abusive marriage, she ended up in Portland, and she is not just in Portland, but she's in rural, like a suburb. And she had no idea what she was getting into. And she found herself like the only black person in the the area. And I'm so grateful that people stick it out because I know it's hard here. 
it's it's it yeah that polite racism is hard to know what you can trust more power to them i'm 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 gonna pray for i'm gonna pray for them i need to pray more for them yes because at the end of the day i mean i've been praying for oregon anyway but at the end of the day for those who the shade of my skin my my black people i definitely need to pray for them because they got more grit than i do (laughs) <laughs> I would. I mean, I, I would not. I would not be able. To, I would not be able to say that. I like being around powerful black people. Yeah, you know, I, just, I just do. And so, as a result of that, that would not work for my personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I totally get that. Yeah, it's really important for people to have spaces where they feel really safe to be themselves. Totally. Right. So let's talk about your business. My company, Slay Your Greatness Academy, is a personal development and leadership training company and my level up your life masterclass which is actually my signature personal development program that i am actually sharing all of the breakthrough ideas that help me to accomplish a lot of goals very fast as far as my mindsets the habits and the skills and it also allows me to put on display the effectiveness of my level up theory which is the drive method advantage and i'm looking forward to sharing that with students actually in august as well as in october and in january 2021 i'm excited about helping people achieve their goals that they never thought was possible simply by helping them to tap into the seed of greatness within them and to see themselves in my opinion the way god sees them and to own it. Tell our listeners about the books that you've written as well. So I've written one leadership book so far, and it is entitled Lead to Succeed. And that is my emerging leadership book that I actually felt like I needed to pour out to people who were like me in minimum wage jobs or maybe first time supervisors who wanted to understand or wanted to know how they're able to figure out how to navigate their career path. And then my book, Get Unstuck Now, which is part memoir as well as part self-help, that shares my journey of coming up out of being someone who living on government assistance, being in a, a domestic violence relationship, then going to work for Marriott as a minimum wage employee, and then my rise uh, extension into becoming a, an executive leader with the company, and then going on to do other executive leadership positions after I left Marriott. And that provides readers also with a snapshot of my level up theory, the drive method advantage. Now, my book that I recently wrote, Find Your Brave, Embrace Fear as a Gift to Show Up, Shine, and Succeed, because of the fact that I'm talking about the thing that most of us turn away from, and that is fear, and recognizing how it's been a gift in my life. Every huge, wonderful thing happened in my life came as a result of me facing my fears. And I realized that there were some things that I was doing each time that was consistent to help me do that. And so I'm sharing those ideas and those strategies in that book so that others are encouraged to see fear as a gift. So they're able to rise up, like the psalms say, you know, just rise up and not allow fear to stop them and to find their brave. Yes. Just go to my website, 
and okay. you will find all the juicy stuff I'm up to right now. Let's talk about grit, resilience, and connection. How can someone increase their resilience? Resilience to me is about first making a decision to commit to taking an action. And even though people might think, okay, well, that's not really resilience. But when you make a commitment, I'm sure, Marie, you know those moments when you just decided to do something versus when you had the full force of your being in a decision that you committed to it right at that same time. And there was nothing that was going to stop because you had the full force of your mental, emotional, spiritual, and your physical being in that decision. Now, in order to get to that point, it's got to be some compelling why that causes you to want to take an action. Because if you don't have something that compels you, like my desire for me to give my children a life better required me to be better required me to step up to the plate. Now, today, because of the fact that I'm being expanded and the, the vision of my life is being expanded and I'm putting myself in situations that are unfamiliar, it's because of the compelling why. My parents taught me, my, my teachers in my all-black elementary school, that you are to be a lifter. You are supposed to raise up. I don't care who else forgot their lessons as a child. I hadn't forgot that. My legacy throughout my corporate career is that. So therefore, it is important as a business owner that I do the same regardless. And so for me, resilience is making the decision and committing the full force of your whole being behind it and recognizing how important it is for you to manage perspective and the meanings you attach to your experience along your journey so that then you can de develop the emotional and mental agility necessary to be able to adapt and to be able to just flow with life versus resisting the truth of what is. So then you're still able to maintain your commitment to the path or to the goal that you say you're going to make happen. When you are 100% committed to something as far as your whole being committed to it, it is really difficult for someone to take you off of that path. My final question is, it's about a story of grit, resilience, and connection that's been an inspiration for you. And I just wanted to give you a shout out, Jackie, because talking to you, talking about our shared passion for resilience and also for the song Rise Up was really what inspired me from my title because you are such an inspiration of grit and resilience to me. So who have you found to be an inspiration in your life? Well, outside of my parents, Martin Luther King Jr. was my first hero. And me listening to his speech, I Have a Dream as a Kid, actually inspired me to believe that I, he was talking to me. Hmm. I mean, I write about this in my books. <laughs> I was like, I felt he was talking to me. <laughs> he was telling me that you <laughs> are going to be a leader. And when I went and told my parents, especially my father, this, my father got 100% behind. He's like, yeah, yeah, you're going to be a leader. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> my God. So He was, he was talking uh, to you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so he, he was talking to me. And so because he was talking to me, I continue to read his works. I continue to pay attention to how he managed the politics within the um, civil rights movement. And that's not only from white people, but also from the black people and the black organizations. I'm a student of Martin Luther King Jr. And I will always be until I die. He still continues to inspire people all over the world. I love that story he, that you thought he was talking to you. He was talking to you. 
I did. I honestly, I mean, honest, I was like, yeah. I even say in my book, get my son. I know you might consider child's naivete, but at the end of the day, I felt like this man was mm -hmm. talking directly to me, Jackie, or no, at the time, everybody was calling me Jacqueline, Jacqueline, <laughs> Jacqueline Capers. So yes, I thought he was talking to Jacqueline Capers. Uh, yes. Uh, were you named after Jacqueline Kennedy? Is that where your parents got the name? One of my older brothers named me Jacqueline. And yes, it was, <laughs> it was, it was inspired by her. Yes, ma'am. Wow. Well, you know, I've been in the last few years, been really inspired by Dr. King's sermons because usually you know in popular culture he's known as an activist and a civil rights leader but he was also a preacher and he yes. preached some amazing sermons yes he he has always been and will ever be my number one inspiration well this has just been such a wonderful conversation jackie i've really enjoyed it and i thank you so much for your time my friend oh I, my pleasure my friend marie 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 thank you so much I hope one of these days we get to meet in person. I don't know where. We, uh, you come to you come to me, or I'll come to you. We can, <laughs> or both. I might want to. I might want to come to you and see what's going on. Yeah. Right. There. <laughs> right. See what's happening in Portland. We've gotten famous, haven't we? <laughs> yes, definitely. Thank you so much, Jackie. I'll be in touch. All right, my love. Okay. Take care. Bye. Be safe. Thank you for joining today and hearing Jackie's story. Isn't she amazing? Next week, my guest is Raina Casey, who has experienced a ton of trauma as an Army veteran who worked the 9-11 site and survived Hurricane Katrina in addition to some seriously scary medical issues and a financially abusive ex. She also has a superstar athlete son who is living with autism. She is a bud tender and a death doula who focuses on quality of life care. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com.